Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19 years to life sentence for murder. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 004-10-7419. Case subject is Spectre Philip Harvey. This information pertains to a period ending December 8, 1980. Interview subject is Lennon, John Winston, interview number 1-97-026-660. Spirit Confessional, recall number 7, October 9, 2006. One Sunday, Phil didn't want to work, so he called me and he said, we can't record today. The studio's burned down. Well, I got someone to call the studio, and lo and behold, it wasn't burned down. The following Sunday, he calls and I say, what happened? We were supposed to be doing a session. And he whispers to me, I've got the John Dean tapes. I said, what? He said, the John Dean tapes, you know, Watergate. He tells me his house is surrounded by helicopters and they're trying to get him. And I'm buying this garbage, you know? What he was trying to tell me in his own way was that he had my tapes. The tapes for the session. Not the John Dean Watergate tapes. We had to sue through Capitol to get the tapes off him. He knew what he was doing. By keeping those tapes close, he was keeping the secrets close. Keeping everything close. He didn't want anyone seeing the blood on the tracks. you shot at me. Why does that surprise you? Why do you pretend to be shocked by that information? Would you like me to say something else? Is that what you're expecting? That Phil Spector was a reasonable person? That he had no temper? I mean, they're all crazy. The brilliant ones always are. He tells me his house is surrounded by helicopters and they're trying to get him. You can't be brilliant and not fly off the handle like that. I would have been disappointed if he hadn't waved a gun on my face. Okay, perhaps that's an exaggeration, but you get my point. I wasn't upset because he shot at me. I was upset because he shot at me and missed the bumbling git. What's the matter with you, Philip? The last fucking verse. He damn near blew the hearing out of me fucking ear. If you're going to shoot off a revolver in a recording studio, the least you can do is fucking connect with something, do you understand? What we should really be talking about is the bullshit that led up to this. Nobody talks about the time that Phil and George Brand hauled my drunk ass back to Lou Adler's house. Drunk ex-Beatle carried home doesn't sell papers the way that crazy producer shoots gun and recording studio does, right? We were recording the rock and roll album with Phil. It was a legal thing, that record was, right? Chuck Berry's music publisher was suing me for Come Together. 
You know, the here come old flat top, that old nonsense. I had no money. I was broke, you see. Alan Klein had left the Beatles in shambles. I was no longer at the toppermost of the poppermost, if I had ever been. I'd say, where are we going, fellas? And they say, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? To the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. I was in Los Angeles, away from Yoko. May was there. I made some music with Harry Nilsson, though we drank more than we worked. At any rate, we came up with this idea that instead of paying this guy millions of dollars for copping the Chuck Berry line, I would record a bunch of covers at this guy. Morris Levy was his name. Had the publishing rights, too. If you try to give rock and roll another name, it might be Chuck Berry. So he'd make his money on the royalties of the record sales. That's all it's about, see, money. It's always about money. Phil was a natural fit for this, of course. We can't record today. The studio's burned down. These were all old songs from the birth of rock and roll. Sort of stuff that Phil and I just loved. Bebopalula, you know, Boney Maroney and Sweet Little Sixteen. And just like me and Nilsson, me and Phil drank a lot. Things were bad with me and Yoko. She wanted me to get away for a while, just go be wild and get it out of my system, and hopefully I'd come back ready to be domestic with her again. Our assistant, May Pang, came with me, at Yoko's request, and I was sleeping with her. It wasn't my clearest hour, let alone my finest. Hey, look, the end of the song is just like the fucking rest of it. We're gonna sing the harmonies to oh, Yoko, come on. So, in keeping with the spirit of the moment, on hiatus from my wife and my life, forced to make a record to settle a lawsuit, higher than Lucy in the Sky on most days. On this particular night, I got myself so drunk that Phil had to end the session. What happened? We were supposed to be doing a session? He and George Brand carried me back to Lou Adler's place in Bel Air, which was where I was staying while I was out west. I was in and out of it, kept on telling Phil that I loved him, you know. Come on, give us a kiss. The next thing I know, they had me tied to the bed. A prisoner. I came out of my drunken stupor in a rage. The rope or string or whatever they had used was digging into my arms and my ankles. Phil and George together, those two were like loose cannons firing away. They enabled each other. May heard my screaming and ran upstairs to see what was going on. Phil and George just left me there. They tried to turn her around and send her away. Told her that they were helping me sober up and not to worry. I broke free of the shackles on Lou Adler's bed and just went crazy. May had called someone to help and I attacked him as soon as he came in the house. I was beyond drunk at this point, you see. I saw red. My vision was blurred. Just rage. I saw Phil's face in every single thing I lashed out at. What happened? I broke windows. I smashed the gold records that Lou had hanging on the walls. Apparently, I did get a punch in on Phil before he left. The next day at the studio, he'd got some makeup kicked all over his face to cover up a black eye. And his sunglasses were on, which he always wore, even in the studio. Was he angry, embarrassed, insulted? I couldn't tell. We didn't say all that much to each other. Mal Evans was there, Phil's mum was there. Seemed odd to have so many guests hanging around when it was so tense in there. And then Phil pulls this gun out and he's waving it around. I don't know if he was trying to intimidate me. Like I said before, the brilliant ones are always crazy. Maybe it's just as simple as that. Of course, the hogwash about Phil's gun is never loaded 
It's just for looks. Well, that was just that, wasn't it? Hogwash. He pulled the trigger and shot it right through the ceiling. We're supposed to be doing a session. Mal had to wrestle the gun from his hand. Phil's mum was petrified. I looked at Phil dead in the eyes and said, Look, man, if you're going to shoot me, shoot me. Just don't fuck with me ears. Inspector first came to London, Paul, George, Ringo and I were just at our worst. We had ended it all. We said, if you want to work with us, go and do your audition. He'd always wanted to work with the Beatles and he was given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit, with a lousy feeling towards it ever. And he made something out of it. He did a great job. When Phil first came to London, this is 1970, he was realising one of his dreams. He worked like a pig on it. We were realizing one of our dreams, too, since he was such a legendary figure. Phil Spector's success is derived from an understanding of what he calls the teen sound. And we were legendary figures as well, I suppose, not to toot our own horn loudly. He was a legendary figure who was in a rough patch. Spector's success is unusual. Others, however, are always at his heels. We were in our own rough patch as well. George thought it could be an opportunity for Phil to get some sort of redemption on record, you see. But at that moment, things were so shitty between the four of us that Jesus Christ himself could have mixed the record and no one would have been happy. And rightly so, what does Jesus know about mixing records anyway? Phil always wanted to work with the Beatles. He had since the early days when the Ronettes toured the UK and we toured America. He was given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit, with a lousy feeling towards it ever. And you know what? He made something out of it. He did a great job. Paul didn't think so, of course, but Paul was inclined to hate everything that I loved at the time and vice versa. We were both cunts to one another. Before Phil had even got his hands on the Let It Be tapes, I asked him to come and record Instant Karma at Abbey Road. Right after, he stepped off the plane. The guys in the band, Klaus Vorman, Alan White, Billy Preston, didn't know. Phil showed up late wearing a shirt with P.S. monogrammed on it. The guys were all like, who the hell is this? It was like he was a parody of Phil Spector. Just the way he was dressed and the way he carried himself. He said, how do you want this to sound? I said, 1950s, now. He said, okay, 1950s, got it, let's roll. And that was that. That was all he needed. He ran his hands over the desk like a magician. And he got it. It sounded like Sun Records right there on Abbey Road. I saw something of myself and Phil, and I'm not just talking about the music. We had both lost parents at a young age. I think that sort of thing shaped us both more than we like to admit, really. So we did Plastic Ono Band, and we did Imagine. We made Imagine at Tittenhurst Park, Ascot Sound Studios. We built that studio right in the middle of the house. It was in the middle of summer, and Phil would show up with these three-piece suits ties, sunglasses. How he made it through some of those hotter days with those wigs on top of his head, I don't know. And then things changed. They did get strange. So he called me and he said, we can't record today. 
and they got strange on his turf. When we left Berkshire and went to Los Angeles, it was almost as if Phil was more comfortable in the UK than he was in his own town. He was like a stranger in his own land. One Sunday, Phil didn't want to work. But by the time we were making records in LA, the shiny Phil Spectre coating had rusted away. There was something else beneath it. He was knocking back poppers all night with swigs of Manischewitz. Elton John showed up one day for a visit and even he was shocked by the instability, the insanity. This is Elton John we're talking about. When Elton John says, hey fellas, maybe that's taking things a bit too far. Well, perhaps you should listen up. Phil started showing up to sessions in different outfits each day like it was a joke. One day he showed up dressed as a doctor. Stethoscope, big metallic circle strapped to his head. Another day he showed up dressed as a priest. Giant crucifix. He responded to every question with his hand, making the sign of the cross. And another day he dressed like he was a blind man. Big black glasses and a cane. He just fumbled around the studio. And then some days he didn't show up at all. I tried to track him down to keep him on task. He called me and he said, we can't record today. The studio's burned down. And then it got worse, whatever it was. His complacency, his fear, his paranoia. And he whispers to me, I've got the John Dean tapes. He went deep down this rabbit hole of conspiracy and secrecy. And it was affecting people around him. But he had my tapes, the tapes of the sessions. I've got the John Dean tapes. He would take them home with him every night, didn't trust anyone. And then he stopped taking my calls. We weren't even done with the record yet. He just disappeared into that house, that frigid, bleak house. We had to sue through capital to get the tapes off him. He wasn't the person I'd gotten to know. It made me question whether or not I even knew the person that I thought he was. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Now, some say I should have known better, that I should have read the writing on the wall. There was a lot on the wall in my defense. A lot that Phil had put there, a lot that I had put there. But remember when we made Instant Karma and the Plastic Ono Band record and imagine all that, Phil came and went. He showed up, he did the work and he left. I didn't see much more of him beyond his role as a record maker. He was keeping the secrets close. But things were different in America, almost immediately. And perhaps I should have paid closer attention, taken him down from the pedestal I'd put him on in my mind and looked at him as a flawed, needy human being. He tells me his house is surrounded by helicopters and they're trying to get him. It was early 1972 and we were making some time in New York City with Phil. Before we started recording in earnest, I heard a story about how he went fucking crazy at the Daisy Club a members-only spot on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. On any given night, a real who's who of ego and fame and wealth. The sort of place that names the sandwiches after the stars that frequent the joint, you know? Want a tuna sandwich? Order the Mickey Rooney. A little fresh fruit and cottage cheese? Try the Kirk Douglas. Even Sonny Bono, one of Phil's former underappreciated lackeys, Phil called him Sonny Bozo, you know. 
He had his own thing on the menu, liver and onions. But you know who wasn't on the menu? Phil Spector. I can only imagine how much that stung, how much that got under his skin, to see name after Hollywood name on that little Daisy's menu and nothing about him. I'm sure he took it personally. Everything was about him. I came to learn that the more I hung around him. The very absence of his name from a members-only club menu was about him. So what I heard was Phil shows up to the Daisy one night wearing a jacket with some karate emblem on it, and he raises hell. Drunken, batshit, disoriented hell. He had become obsessed with karate. His obsessions were fleeting from what I've been told. Maybe guns were the one exception to that rule. But at this point in his life, karate was his consuming hobby. I took up causes. Angela Davis, John Sinclair, Attica. And Phil took up karate. Maybe it was the Green Hornet. Maybe it was the Pink Panther and Peter Sellers. Or Bruce Lee. When Bruce Lee died, Phil was convinced that he was murdered by some death touch, whatever that is. Emil Farkas had taught him that. Taught him about the death touch. Emil and another guy that they just called Lazlo were his bodyguards in the late 60s, but they also both happened to be black belts. Phil hired them partly for protection, but partly so he could learn those moves. So he's at the Daisy, no doubt enjoying himself, but also no doubt stewing over the fact that his goddamn name isn't gracing one of the menu items. And this woman walks up to him and starts talking to him. Probably something like, Aren't you Phil Spector? The Titan of Teen? And what does Phil do? He lost it, man. He didn't ask this woman to talk to him, how dare she, you know, that sort of thing. It was probably all misplaced frustration and aggression. He pulls a gun out from his karate jacket. He just skips over the karate part altogether, all this training and obsessing in our being. All of it for the dogs in this heated moment. His gun could do the talking better than his karate shopping ever could. He pointed that gun at this poor woman who's just standing there shaking in the middle of a high-end private club. She probably was just a big fan of you've lost that love and feeling or something and wanted a moment with the man. But now this is the kind of shit I'm talking about. He was becoming unwound as the time went on. This house is surrounded by helicopters and they're trying to get him. The next year, in 1973, we started recording what would become the Rock and Roll album. And that's when things got really strange. One Sunday, Phil called me and said, We can't record today, the studio's burnt down. I thought, holy shit, the studio's on fire. That was a first, wasn't it? And I'm buying this garbage, you know? But I was suspicious. The whole thing was suspicious. He had been turning up to sessions late. He was drunk. We were drunk. And the phone call just struck me as an excuse. A cop-out. Phil didn't want to work. So I had someone call over to A&M Studios and a guy answers the phone with no urgency. No flames crackling in the background. Lo and behold, it wasn't burned down. The studio wasn't on fire. Phil just didn't want to work. The following Sunday, Phil calls me and I say, What happened? We were supposed to be doing a session. And he whispers to me. I said, what? He said, the John Dean tapes, you know, the Watergate tapes. Watergate. He tells me his house is surrounded by helicopters and they're trying to get him. Not buying this garbage, you know? But he didn't have the Watergate tapes. He was trying to tell me that he had my tapes, the session tapes. Everything we had done up to that point. He would take them home with him every night. 
He probably felt safe knowing that when he put his head down on his pillow at night, the tapes were protected inside a gated mansion surrounded by guns and his muscle men. By keeping those tapes close, he was keeping the secrets close. We had to sue him through Capitol to eventually get the tapes back, and I finished the album without him. And then he got into that car crash on Melrose, head-on collision in his Rolls Royce. He went right through the fucking front windshield. The whole accident allowed him to re-emerge as another person, you see. He looked different, he sounded different, he acted different. Like Dylan in that motorcycle crash. He knew what he was doing. But the new Phil, the Phil that lived to tell the tale about that crash, was not the idealized version of Phil that we had created in our heads. You know, there's a reason that they say don't meet your idols. At the end of the day, Phil Spector was not the person I thought he was. The last time I talked to him, he was whispering on the other end of the phone about conspiracies and secrets. He was keeping the secrets close. And it was all just a calculated sham to keep me squarely in the dark. Nineteen seventy-three, Hollywood, A&M Studios. John Lennon was tired, worn down by excess, perverted by vice, winded from outrunning scandal. His sojourn to Los Angeles, meant to be some sort of existential palate cleanser, had been an existential drag. He hoped that today would be different. Today he could take the focus off himself, off of the things he wanted and the things he desired, and simply witness something that would make him happy. Imagine that. He was excited to meet Darlene Love, perhaps even more excited to watch her sing in the studio. He had been a fan of hers ever since the early 60s when she sang lead on the crystals He's a Rebel and He's Sure the Boy I Love, back before he and the rest of the world even knew who she was. John's love of American girl group pop was evident by the songs that the Beatles covered in their touring years and released on some of their early records. And now he'd get to be a fly on the wall and watch Darlene reunite with Phil Spector the producer who had put her heavenly voice to wax in the first place. John's time spent in Los Angeles would come to be known as his lost weekend, but it was far from a weekend. It lasted 18 months. And during that time, he had an intense affair with his assistant while estranged from his wife. He got ejected from the troubadour with Harry Nilsson for heckling the Smothers Brothers while wasted on Brandy Alexander's. He failed to get Stevie Wonder to snort a line of blow while jamming with Paul McCartney and he stumbled through California nightlife while desperately hanging on to a few functional brain cells. His relationship with Phil Spector had initially resulted in some of the most raw, stripped-down records of any ex-Beatle, but Phil's instability was making things difficult. John was skeptical if they would ever make it through the rock and roll sessions alive. Darlene Love walked into a and studios skeptical of the whole situation, skeptical mostly of Phil. This wasn't her first rodeo, She'd been produced by Phil before, ordered around by Phil before, obscured by Phil before, humiliated by Phil before. In fact, Phil had just bought her contract from Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. She'd only been with the Philly producers for a few months. She had dreamed of escaping from under Phil's shadow, and now she felt that dark cloud hover back over her head. She was seven months pregnant, 
and thought twice about taking the gig when she got the call, but Phil's assistant, Sandy, was a nice girl and made Darlene feel like royalty before she even walked into a and studios. She'd do it. She'd give it a shot. She smiled when she walked through the studio door and saw Cher, and there was John Lennon. John Lennon, a beetle, there in the flesh, there for no other reason than to watch her do her thing. But this time around, Phil seemed worse than before. Phil had his back turned to Darlene. He didn't turn around to face her when he spoke. He instructed the engineer to start playback and the song, Lord, If You're a Woman, started coming through the speakers. Darlene sang a line. Phil stopped her halfway through, told her to sing it again. She started to sing the line again, this time the way Phil asked her to. She got through the take, only to see Phil shaking his head. He didn't like it. She needed to try again. So she did it, again and again. she would barely make it through a line and he would stop playback again. And throughout the belabored process of take after take, Phil eventually turned to face Darlene from where he stood safely behind the production booth's glass. He cut playback again and Darlene read Phil's lips as he spoke to the others in the booth. Watch me make her do it again. The guests in the booth laughed. John Lennon was laughing. It was a game to them, a joke to them. She was their joke. And for Darlene Love, those memories came flooding back. The memories of the early 60s, the crystals, bobby socks, and the blue jeans. She wasn't gonna be anyone's joke anymore. Not John Lennon's, and certainly not Phil Spector's. She took her headphones off, put her coat on, told Phil Spector to go to hell. Phil watched as Darlene walked out the door. He remained safely inside the production booth. He was keeping the secrets close, keeping everything close friends, enemies, people in between. He didn't want anyone getting a good look at the blood on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. Season 2 featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is Season 1, with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on The Rolling Stones, Jerry Lee Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode featured Scott Janowitz as John Lennon. Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow. All right, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland, 
and 27 Club. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Oh, dang it.